0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Critical Theory. I'm your host, Stephen Dozman. Logic, the study of how certain arguments either succeed or fail to support their conclusions, is one of the most important topics in philosophy. Its importance illustrated by the common assumption that if one is being logical, they are probably right. However, the importance of logic has led to a certain amount of misuse and abuse over the years with questionable arguments being given a veneer of reasonableness to cover up some questionable philosophical mechanics. In a way, this is nothing new. Since the beginning of philosophy, there has been an ongoing tension between true philosophers and sophists. The form this sophistry takes is often a reflection of the particular political and cultural questions that are being debated. And so any attempt to make sense of one's times and build any sort of popular consensus will require diving into the pseudologic and deconstructing it hopefully with a better argument in its place. This is the project of my guest today, Ben Burgess, here to discuss his book, Give Them an Argument, Logic for the Left, from Zero Books in 2019. Both a professor of philosophy and a committed political leftist, Burgess wades through a host of contemporary examples, arguing that the common arguments for capitalism and against socialism often rely on questionable logic that can and should be debated. On top of this... He argues that the left needs to learn to better integrate logical thinking into its own analysis and communicate its ideas in ways that not only maintain their rigor, but offer logical clarity to a wide swath of people. Ben Burgess is a professor of philosophy at Georgia State University University Perimeter College. His writing has appeared in a number of outlets, including Jacobin, Ariel, and Quillette. He is a co-host of the Dead Pundit Society and hosts his own podcast, Give Them an Argument. So, Ben Burgess, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you, Stephen. So, as kind of an introduction, could you maybe tell us a bit about who you are and what your writing tends to focus on?
1: Sure. Uh, So, I uh, went to graduate school in philosophy, and I wrote a dissertation about uh, philosophy of logic, logical paradoxes, Uh, and for between then and Really, just a few years ago, almost everything that I wrote tended to be like fairly like esoteric academic stuff uh, that, you know, I was I was always a leftist. Uh, I'd always, you know, read uh, Glenn Greenwald uh, columns about civil liberties and drones and, you know, argue about that stuff with my liberal friends. Uh, but I, I wasn't really particularly politically active until the Bernie Sanders campaign in 2016, uh, and and I only really, really started doing the kind of work that, that I was doing now when um, when I started to write the book. When I talked to my friend Doug Lane, who edits Zero Books, about the uh, the idea for it, uh, and and since then I've I've gotten much more interested in both like writing about philosophy for a popular audience and uh and writing uh about politics about stuff that's directly conjecturally going on at the moment and also in trying to relate the two
0: excellent so to kick things off you talk early in the book about one of your own favorite podcasts chapo trap house and the host there wrote a book titled the chapo guide to revolution a manifesto against logic facts and reason so the subtitle is being very hyperbolic because it's a very comedic podcast But it does point to this particular social dynamic you talk about where progressives can at times feel a bit exasperated by the constant demands from certain people to have a logical debate in the free marketplace of ideas. So being both a leftist and a professor who specializes in logic, you obviously don't think the left can or should abandon logic, but that this exasperation is understandable Given certain dynamics on both social media and in philosophy 101 classes, so can you maybe unpack some of the dynamics here a bit?
1: Sure. So i I think that obviously, uh, as you say, you know, I'm a fan of Chapo. I've I've been lucky enough to talk to one of the hosts, Matt Crisman, a couple times on on the Dead Pundit Society, and also my solo podcast. I think is always very insightful. Uh, But what you know, as is often the case with with jokes, right? You know there there is a there is a core of something real there, right? And of course, the least funny thing you can do with a joke is try to unpack the exact degree to which uh, it's um, you know it, it's really meant and the exact degree towards which it's being funny. Uh, but I think that the underlying thing has to do with a frustration that some people on the left have. With people who use a lot of explicit logical vocabulary, uh, do things like list premises of arguments, explicitly talk about logical fallacies, and I think there are a couple of reasons for that. Um, one of which just has to do with the people who are most likely to talk that way. Um, so I think that for that libertarians certainly. And other kinds of right wingers are the ones who are most likely to really lean hard on that vocabulary. I think there are some historical reasons for that. For example, about the influence of Ayn Rand uh, on American libertarianism and and how much she uh, loved using that that kind of uh, of rhetoric. Right, if you read her massive political novel Atlas Shrugged, she actually gives the sections the titles of basic logical principles, you know, law of non-contradiction, law of the excluded middle, things like that. Uh, I guess we'll talk more about that later. But uh, but another reason that's related to the first reason is that people very often have the misimpression that when you talk about logic, you're talking about something much narrower than you really are. Uh, so they they think that... And again, this is not coming out of nowhere. Some of this has to do with the bad habits of the groups of people that I just mentioned. Uh, but they often think that when you talk about logic, that must mean that you're making a priori arguments from some uh, really basic principles, that you, know, that, you have, uh, that you have some super basic philosophical or moral principles that you're trying to derive like all of your political views from through some like numbered set of steps. Uh, and that's not right. So logic is just the study of arguments. Uh, so what we're studying when we study logic is when the premises of an argument succeed and giving us a good reason to think the conclusion is true and when they don't. And of course, any kind of uh, political persuasion and, and political discourse is going to rely on arguments. It's totally inescapable, uh, which is one of the reasons I think it's important to actually put some effort into learning the technical terminology of studying arguments and try to get them right. Uh, But I think oftentimes people react against the people who are the most likely to talk this way, the most likely to have this certain view that, Oh, it's bad to have political views that are based on emotional reactions to things uh, that you should just try to uh, derive everything from this really small set of principles. And, they, and people have lots of good reasons for, for disliking the approach of people uh, who have those views. Uh, for one thing, they often correctly realize that a lot of political questions are immensely more complicated than anything you can derive from a few principles, that history and sociology and, and all these complexities that come from those fields are relevant. That's true. Uh, they also correctly realize Uh, that any sort of political program is ultimately going to be inspired by what we care about, you know, in terms of empathy for other people, in terms of a certain conception of of what we would count as as a just society, uh, and and that those are things that have to do with, uh, with human feelings that can't just be derived out of thin air. And again, all of that's true, but a historical argument is an argument. A sociological argument is an argument. An argument about how to enact values that are rooted in a sense of empathy is an argument. And if you're going to make arguments, I think that it's important to try to get them right.
0: Yeah, excellent. So kind of you've alluded to this a bit, but you argue that a major problem and a source of a lot of this exasperation you describe, it comes from the way logic is taught in philosophy and rhetoric courses. So it's taught in this kind of very reductive and simplistic way, which leads to a very reductive or simplistic understanding of what logic is and can do, which then leads to lots of students going out into the world with some admittedly very powerful analytic tools, but a large misunderstanding of what they can do with those tools. So can you explain the problems with the way logic is taught and some of the misunderstandings that result from this?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So when we're talking about teaching logic, um, at least at the introductory level, which is really the level that's relevant because, you know, 95% of people who are ever exposed to a college logic class, what they're exposed to is an introductory class. And those come in two different flavors. So one of them is formal symbolic logic, uh, which is the stuff that many people have a bad reaction to because it looks like math, There are symbols. Uh, although many people end up taking it because at some universities you can take it to get out of your math requirement and uh, they hate math so much that they, they're willing to do that and then they're a little disappointed by, by how similar that kind of logic is to math. Uh, but the the other introductory logic class, the, the kind that's more relevant to the issues that I'm discussing in the book, there's like a smidgen Oh, symbolic logic in the book, but for the most part, that's not really relevant there. Uh, the other kind is what's, depending on your university, might be called a critical thinking class or a critical reasoning class, or at Rutgers, where I taught for years uh, as an adjunct, it was the logic reasoning and persuasion class called LRP or LRP. Uh, and that class is the one where you aren't really doing the deep dive like you would in a symbolic logic class on the formal structure of arguments, but you're doing things like trying to examine the content of arguments to see whether they commit fallacies where fallacy is just a, a mistaken reasoning. It's just some sort of argument that might look like a good argument, but is actually spurious. Uh, And oftentimes this, that subject, right, logical fallacies, is where this reaction we were just talking about is strongest, right? I opened the, up the book by talking about a um, a good friend of mine, actually, who is a, a graduate student at, at Rutgers when I was teaching there. Uh, who, you know, I, I talked. I remember talking to her at a party where she was assigned to teach this this LRP, this LRP class, Logic, Reason, Persuasion, uh, the next semester. Uh, and you know it was, it was a party. She was a little bit drunk, you know, and 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 her her reaction to the suggestion when she asked, "Oh, what would you even teach in this class if it comes before symbolic logic?" Oh, well, you know, you can teach about logical fallacies. Was ugh, that's how people become annoying libertarian boys, uh, and uh, and I get it, right? Uh, because. This is something that, that if you spend a lot of time certainly arguing about politics online, you're going to run into these people who uh, are very often libertarians, uh, who sort of wield talk of logic and logical fallacies as a cudgel, as, as a way of shutting people down or sort of scoring points. Uh, like they treat like diagnosing something as a logical fallacy, as if it were like a yellow card that you can give out in a political debate. Uh, you broke the rules. Uh, you know, like a hall monitor or something. And of course, that's going to be very annoying to most people, right? How could it not be? Uh, but I think that's a fundamental misunderstanding of what these tools are for. And and what I try to grapple with a little bit in the book is the way that this is a misunderstanding that comes from the way that we, and I really do mean we, I've definitely been part of the problem at points, uh, often teach these things in that introductory, more informal logic class, like LRP or critical thinking or whatever it's called at different universities. Uh, and the problem is, especially if you're teaching a bunch of classes, which is very often the case in uh, corporatized neoliberal universities that increasingly lean on uh, you know, part-time and contingent faculty uh, for, their, for their teaching needs, uh, and, they, uh, and they, so they end up oftentimes really overworking people, uh, and if you're teaching a bunch of classes, then you don't have a lot of time to do grading. And even if you're not teaching a bunch of classes, the the path of least resistance when you have to come up with a way of of assessing people, right? They, they've they've done, you know, you need some way of handing out grades at the end of the semester. That's uh, that's an essential part of what colleges ask instructors to do. And so, in each part of the course, you need some way to grade people on it. And the easiest way, the most obvious way to grade people on their learning logical fallacies is to give them quizzes or tests where they're given some little um, toy example of a fallacy that's super obvious, and they're asked to to like match it up with the name of the fallacy. Uh, and the problem with that is that what it actually teaches is just the names of a bunch of logical fallacies and like some basic thumbnail description of it such that if, if an example is extremely obvious, you can identify it, which doesn't do anything about the problem that I've most often run into and which I, I see evidence all the time in these of, in these online political debates, which is that uh, a little bit of knowledge about this stuff can be dangerous and people will wildly overdiagnose these things uh, because what they have is a bunch of names of fallacies and, and a bunch of like really like cursory kinds of descriptions of them. And so it's a fun thing to be able to try to identify with, to identify when they're being committed, especially when you see it as this kind of tool that you can use to, to best someone in a debate. Oh, aha! you broke the rules. Uh, and so what that means is that we are often really failing to teach people to be discriminating and thoughtful about when they're present or not, because really what you should use these for uh, is not um, kind of making people look foolish because, you know, they broke a rule of debate or something. That's not the point at all. The point is to try to to think harder about when an argument is persuasive or not. And so – Oftentimes there are multiple ways of understanding what someone's saying and on one of them they're committing this and another they're not. And so really this should just be the first step in the conversation. Like, oh, okay, I think this might, this argument might be going wrong because, you know, it seems like um, it has this problem, right, that's identified with the name of a fallacy. Let's think harder about whether it really is. If it is, is there a way to rework it so it doesn't? Because if you're interested in using arguments to try to find the truth, You're going to want to do all that and not just do some instant diagnosis to show off how good you are at knowing the names of fallacies.
0: Yeah, so that kind of sets up the main ideas behind the book. So to dive into it, um, one of the first people you look at is Ben Shapiro, and you particularly look at his 2014 book, How to Debate Leftists and Destroy Them, 11 Rules for Winning an Argument. One of the first things you notice is that in the title, as well as some of the rules, there's an underlying idea that logical debate is a sort of intellectual combat where he talks about hitting first, striking at weak points, hitting hard and frequently. Uh, So before getting to some of his actual arguments, what do these rules tell us about how Shapiro views logic and debate?
1: Yeah. I mean, you kind of alluded to it in your question, but I think the really remarkable thing uh, about, you know, kind of flipping through this on Kindle uh, is that you realize very quickly that even though it's called 11 rules for winning the arguments, hardly any of these actually have anything to do with arguments in the sense that you talk about an argument in the context of, you know, logic or philosophy. Uh, In other words, with the reasons that somebody is giving to think that what they're saying is true. Um, That's almost completely absent, right? He, there's like one rule uh, that's about spotting inconsistencies. There's maybe one or two others. I'd have to go through them that like kind of sort of have to do with arguments. But what really going through this shows is that this isn't about making arguments to, try to figure out what's true or, you know, or anything even really in the neighborhood of that, this is about debate as a certain kind of verbal uh, combat, right? As, as, a, as a rhetorical exercise. So there are rules like, you know, don't let them call you a racist and, you know, and, and, and as you say, strike early and strike often and, you know, don't let them frame it and things like that, which are rules for, coming off well in a verbal encounter. And I'm not saying that it's bad to think harder about how to use rhetoric. In fact, it's something that I often wish uh, my friends and comrades on the left or some of them uh, thought more about it, right? You know, how to rhetorically package, you know, uh, their arguments so people are taking it seriously. But I do think it's important to, to really underline and circle the fact that this has absolutely nothing to do with the quality of the arguments themselves.
0: So Shapiro is very well known for speaking at college campuses, and YouTube is always recommending me clips with titles like Shapiro Destroys College SJW with facts and logic with lots of capitalized words and exclamation points. (laughs) So you look at one instance where a college student makes some remarks about transgenderism, and he asks her how old she is. She says 22, and he asks why she doesn't identify as a 60-year-old. When she tries to object, he overrides her saying, you can't magically change your gender. You can't magically change your sex. You can't magically change your age. So there's a lot going on here. And Shapiro has a way of making his arguments in a very quick succession, which makes it hard to keep up and see exactly what he's done. So can you slow things down a bit and unpack what he's done here?
1: Yeah. I think what you said about how he, he tends to go very, very quickly is is really a key point for understanding Shapiro's shtick, because uh, this is for Shapiro, for people who treat arguments and debate the way that Shapiro treat them. This is a huge part of their appeal. Um, oh my God, look at how smart he is, you know, that he can just go through this like nothing like that, you know, that, that, he, that his, this stuff is just at his fingertips and he's just, little watch him go. Uh, but actually what it does is it often papers over huge holes in the reasoning because uh, he's going so fast and he sounds so confident uh, that uh, it's it's easy to just miss things that would seem obvious if you, as you said, slowed down a little bit and thought harder about it. Uh, and so when we're doing arguments by analogy, which is what he's doing here, that like his argument is basically that uh, – that trying to that uh, identifying as a gender that doesn't match your biological sex is like identifying with with an age uh, that doesn't match you know how long you've been alive and because we would think that the latter is ridiculous we should also think the former is ridiculous and so a trans woman is really a man, a trans man is really a woman all that stuff um, and if you're actually, interested in using this technique, argument by analogy, to try to figure out what's true, try to at least make sure that your own beliefs are internally consistent, which is all, all good things that analogies can be, can be, can be helpful for, uh, then what you want to do is basically the opposite of what he does in this clip. Um, so you don't want to um, to just kind of use it to bulldoze over someone he's talking to, uh, yeah, there's a twenty two year old woman at the college. Uh, and I'm sure, you know, she's probably never asked somebody a question at a public event before. She certainly doesn't do this for a living like like he does. So when she has a moment of hesitation, he just bulldozes over her. And that's good for rhetorically impressing people on YouTube, but it's very bad for trying to figure out what's true. If we're actually trying to figure out whether this is a good, whether an analogy, is a good analogy, then you need to think about two things. One is the relevant similarities between the two things that you're analogizing and the other, are the relevant dissimilarities. Uh, Of course, no two things are exactly alike, or they'd be the same thing. Uh, But you want to say, okay, well, how, how many ways, like what are the ways in which they're different? How relevant are they to the point of the analogy? Uh, And so one um, one way to think about some of what might be wrong with his analogy here uh, is that it seems like age is a relatively unambiguous thing, right? There, there really seems to only be one thing that we normally mean by age, uh, and gender doesn't seem to be like that. There seem to be at least a couple different things that we could mean uh, we could mean by gender. Uh, another, another relevant disanalogy might be that oftentimes people who are transgender talk about how they, you know, like if somebody is born biologically male uh, but they identify uh, as a woman, they talk about how they've always felt like a woman or, you know, vice versa. Uh, Not always. Right. But that's very common. And nothing like it, like it seems to be very hard to make sense of what the equivalent to that would even be in the trans age case. Right. Like if you, Uh, identify as as 60. Have you always felt like you were 60? That doesn't sound quite right. Uh, But I think a more helpful analogy, uh, one that I got from uh, Sophie Grace Chappelle, who's a trans woman philosophy professor, uh, is between uh, gender and parenthood. And this really helps to bring out the multiple things that we might mean when we use language like gender, man, woman, uh, all of these terms. So one of the things that we might mean is biological sex. Now, there is there are some extreme views held by some trans activists that said that we should just like, we shouldn't even think there is such a thing as biologically innate sex. Uh, lots of trans activists actually disagree with that. And I don't think they, people who do assert that have a good argument. Uh, I, I don't think we can jump from the fact that there are some people with unusual chromosomal combinations or might be intersex to saying that there isn't a real distinction between male and female biological sexes. Um, But uh, one way to use the word gender is basically to make it a synonym for, for biological sex. Fair enough. Uh, But that's not the only way we seem to use it, right? Because we also, uh, we also seem to use it to talk about gender identity and gender presentation and uh, kind of legal status that sometimes goes with those first two things, having to do with things like uh, what bathrooms uh, somebody uses, what uh, um, you know, what gender segregated you know things they get to participate in. Uh, and this is where the Sophie Grace Chappelle parenthood analogy seems really helpful in thinking harder about this, uh, because one way of using words like mother, father, or parent. Is to describe a biological relationship. That's the way that we're using these terms in a sentence like, "The test came back, and you're not the father." Uh, but it's certainly not the only way we use it, right? We also refer to uh, to, to stepfathers as fathers, you know, adoptive pair, you know, uh, adoptive parents as parents, uh, and in fact, we could imagine quite easily a world in which there were con- the, the equivalent of culture war controversies about, uh, bathroom usage and whatnot had to do with parents where some ultra conservative, uh, school principals didn't allow, um, uh, adoptive parents to participate in parent teacher conference because damn it, parent refers to a biological relationship. Uh, and, and we would, even though we recognize that the biological usage, of the word parents, one way to use that term, uh, we would still think it was unreasonable to insist on using it in every context, and we would find it disturbing and bigoted uh, to insist on it in a context like that. And and I think, obviously, this is an immensely complicated subject, uh, but I think that uh, that does really go to show why just kind of seizing on this gender-age comparison and running with it and not considering any of the problems with that is going to lead you into some pretty dubious territory.
0: Yeah. Jumping off of that, one thing you notice in Shapiro's work is his attention to optics. Um, Weirdly, his book about logical arguments doesn't talk a lot, as you said, about the nature and structure of logical arguments. Uh, but he does talk a lot about things like body language and tone and staying focused and framing debates. So, what does this attentiveness to optics at the expense of actual logic tell us about Shapiro's approach to logic and debate here?
1: Yeah. Again, I, I think it. I think it shows that he's thinking of it largely as a kind of verbal combat. Uh, and and look I, again. I don't think that it's a bad thing to be attentive to the rhetorical packaging of arguments. I just think it's a mistake to mistake the packaging for the thing itself, Um, that it is important that you present arguments in a way that's going to be compelling to your audience. Humans are a narrative species. We're not just computers that process, you know, good argument, bad argument in a totally dispassionate way. Uh, But these are just two different subjects, right? So, and In fact, I think that it's often helpful to separate them, even when you're thinking about persuasion. Because if you think about the kind of debates, of course, Shapiro uh, only really debates, you know, 22-year-olds on college campuses who are like nervously asking a question for the first time. Um, You know, famously, uh, he actually walked out of an interview with the BBC uh, journalist who he 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 thought was a biased liberal even though the guy was actually a pretty right-wing Tory because he was asking him some tough questions because that's how BBC works. Uh, they, they don't do softball interviews in quite the same way that the American media tends to. Uh, but but it, I think that even from uh, a, a cynical perspective, even just from like, okay, look, forget what should work, what actually does work, it's still important to attend to the substance and not just the rhetorical packaging because... I've done plenty of like YouTube debates and things like that uh, debates on podcasts. And, and I'm very aware that there is this kind of this element of rhetorical pro wrestling to the whole thing. uh, And that oftentimes the kinds of factors that Shapiro was talking about are the kinds that people are going to register the most in the moment, right? When it's like, it's been over for five minutes and people are talking, okay, who do you think won? But I don't think that's necessarily that relevant to persuasion because if you think about how persuasion actually works, it's very rare for anybody to just change their mind instantly, like in the room. Uh, what tends to more often happen, at least in my experience, is that you know when you hear somebody making a good argument for a view you hate, your initial reaction is going to be irritation, uh, and when you're persuaded, as people often are, right, you know it, it'd be It'd be weird if you went through your life never being convinced by anything. Uh, It doesn't happen. It had to be an instantaneous process. It tends to be more like a seed is planted that bears fruit later, that I find that I'm thinking about something weeks later or even months later. And I think back to the subject and I realize that I've changed my mind, that the considerations I initially dismissed now seem very powerful to me. And I think that that is more of an effect of substance than than presentation. That that sort of slow motion kind of it sort of works at the back of your mind. You realize, oh yeah, you know, I think that guy might have actually been right. Uh, and the thing, and so even just in terms of of, of persuading the persuadable, uh, you know, I think in a sense, obviously Shapiro's repping a different team than I am, but I think he's actually giving even bad advice to his team in not emphasizing the underlying substance of the arguments more.
0: So after this, you turn to libertarianism and libertarians often share a more broadly conservative rhetoric about individual responsibility and encourage a sort of pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality as a solution to economic hardship and inequality and as a way of discouraging things like raising the minimum wage or investing in social safety nets for the poor. They also have token examples lots of times of people who have come up from impoverished areas to become business owners and CEOs. Uh, But you think that beneath some of this rhetoric about kind of pulling yourself up uh, and these kind of isolated examples of people who do that there's some fallacious logic going on under the hood. So can you unpack what you see going on in some of this?
1: Yeah. So it's certainly true that upward mobility exists, uh, that in every capitalist society, uh, there are people who start out, you know, at least relatively lower down in the economic ladder uh, who, who make their way up uh, to the top or at least much better off than, than they started as that's obviously not impossible. Uh, My problem comes in when people see this uh, as sufficient to address the problem. That, in other words, people will say, uh, oh, poverty isn't a problem as long as there are opportunities uh, for people to rise out of poverty, uh, which is a problem. Now, my first reaction to that is... Okay, well, you know, we're, I guess, like the assumption is that poverty is only a problem if you spend your whole life in it. That you know, if you spend your childhood in it, that's okay. And and I have a lot of problems with that, just on a moral level, but also on a logical level. Uh, the problem with this uh, is that it's a pretty good example of the fallacy of composition. So the fallacy of composition is the logical mistake that we make when we say that. Any any individual member of a group uh, could you know could do something, or more broadly, that something is true of the members of a, of of a group, or something is true of the parts of a whole. Therefore, it's true of the whole. So, an obvious kind of toy example of the fallacy of composition. It's not an argument that anybody would make in real life, but it's one that gets the idea across is like every atom in the Brooklyn Bridge is invisible, therefore the Brooklyn Bridge is invisible. It's obvious why that's not a good argument. Uh, but really, the upward mobility solution to poverty, which you get not just from libertarians, uh, but uh, and not even just from conservatives, but you also get from just mainstream centrist liberals, people like Barack Obama, you know, who who use phrases like, uh, education is the best anti-poverty program, uh, are committing, I think, a subtler version of the same mistake, uh, because even if there were no barriers whatsoever to upward mobility, in other words, every single person had an, who was poor had an exactly equal chance of overcoming poverty uh, through getting ahead in some career path. Uh, and obviously that's not true. There are lots and lots of circumstances that lots and lots of people are in uh, that prevent them from doing so. But even if it were true, uh, this still wouldn't be a solution to poverty per se, uh, because even if it were true that of every single individual separately, that they could uh, make it out of poverty, it's absolutely not true of every individual together that they could make it out of poverty, uh, that, you know. Even if it's true, if we're thinking about any given individual in isolation that, oh, they could, uh, they could start a small business, they could go to school and get good grades and, you know, become a lawyer, they could do whatever. The problem is not everybody could actually do any of those things, right? We couldn't have a society where everybody was a doctor, a lawyer, or a small businessman because for one thing, we'd all starve to death because there would be nobody left to grow the food. So
0: when libertarians aren't defending capitalism by extolling the virtues of individual responsibility, they often use scare tactics to ward against anything resembling socialism, usually arguing that there's a danger in these political orientations. And we know this because of the horrors of Stalinism or some other totalitarian regime that emerged in somewhere in the 20th century. Often this requires a very selective reading of how historical d- dynamics have and do play out, but it also depends on logical abuses as well. So can you unpack how these arguments work at the logical level and the mistakes being made?
1: Yeah. So uh, oftentimes what you'll get is people saying uh, that, Oh, uh, any suggestion for a non-capitalist society, any model of how the economy could work that doesn't involve most people being in the working class and some people uh, having the resources to own businesses and everybody in the first category working for people in the second category, uh, they'll say, hold on, what about Stalin, right? What about Mao? What about um, these dictatorial authoritarian regimes where there were all sorts of atrocities that were committed uh, in the 20th century? And what they'll often say is, Every time that there's been an attempt to replace capitalism with socialism, uh, it's led to this. Uh, so so therefore, we should, we should believe, it's reasonable to believe that probably the same thing is going to happen in any future attempts. And if you say, oh, that wasn't real socialism, then you're doing like a no true Scotsman uh, fallacy. In other words, like you're saying that it's like when you say uh, – you know, no Scotsman, you know, would do such and such. And then somebody points at a Scottish person who did it, and then you say, "Oh, well, no true Scotsman would." Where you're just defining all, you're just uh, defining true Scotsmen to get around the counterexamples. That when you say, "Oh, the Soviet Union wasn't real socialism," you're just committing an evasive maneuver like that. Uh, and I think that all of this uh, is pretty sketchy logically for a couple reasons. Uh, first of all, it's not actually at all true that every attempt uh, at at creating socialism and, you know, in uh, in the sense of a socialist democracy has, uh, has led to something like Stalinism. Uh, in fact, there has been exactly one, or actually really what I should say to be more precise, is there has been at most one historical example of an attempt to create a socialist democracy turning into Stalinism, and that would be the Russian Revolution. And that depends on some very complicated historical arguments about how to understand what was going on with the Russian Revolution. Uh, So roughly, putting aside people who uh, are Stalinists themselves, so they think the outcome was great, uh, or people who were just right-wing anti-communists, broadly speaking, two big narratives about what went on with the Russian Revolution are a kind of anarchist narrative according to which... The Bolsheviks were always pretty authoritarian, and uh, and so their, really their intention from the beginning was to create something very much like what the Soviet Union became, and what we can broadly call the Trotskyist narrative, according to which um, there was this real attempt to create a socialist democracy, and for all kinds of historical reasons having to do with this backwards semi-feudal country that was counting on the rest of Europe uh, coming to its, you know, coming to its aid after their own socialist revolutions, uh, being besieged by all these enemy armies and getting to this terrible civil war and everything. That those sort of historical pressures distorted this to attempt to create socialist democracy into Stalinism. Which one of those is right? It's really hard to say. I think it's it's immense, like. You know, it's an immensely messy and ambiguous historical case. I suspect there's probably some truth to both of these. But the important part for us right now is if you go with the Trotskyist narrative, the number of countries where there was an attempt to create socialist democracy that degenerated into Stalinism is exactly one. If you go with the anarchist narrative, the number is zero. Uh, If you think that the truth lies somewhere in between, maybe it's like 0.5 or something, uh, but it's certainly not more than one no matter who's right about that historical argument because it's just not true and in fact nobody thinks this when you when you spell it out nobody thinks that Mao's China or uh, you know East Germany uh, after World War II uh, or you know Ho Chi Minh's Vietnam or any of these places came about as a result of, attempts to create a non-Stalinist democratic form of socialism that just somehow degenerated into the Soviet-style model of a single-party state overseeing a planned economy. Uh, Because all of these post-1917 cases were were revolutions that were led by Capital C communist parties whose explicit avowed intention was to recreate the Soviet model of socialism. Uh, so it's it's just as a matter of historical fact, the premise behind this deduction or this attempted induction, right? Saying, "Oh, in every case where this has been attempted before, uh, it's it's turned into Stalinism," is just flat out wrong. Uh, it's it's a perfect example the fallacy of hasty generalization, which is where you Uh, You have like you don't have enough cases in your sample to be able to confidently conclude something. It's like if I asked one of my classes at Georgia State, um, you know, raise your hand if you've ever visited Athens, Georgia. And since Athens isn't that far away from Atlanta, a certain number of people raise their like, let's say half the class raises their hand. And then I conclude that half of the college students in the United States have visited Athens, Georgia. That would be a terrible inference. Uh, and it's a terrible inference because I'm I'm going from this tiny sample size of people at one university, and so I'm not in any position to make generalizations about all universities, and it's exactly the same problem. And as far as the no, tr- no true Scotsman idea, um, that's also just wrong, right? I'm not that emotionally invested in whether we refer to what existed in the Soviet Union as an authoritarian form of socialism, in which case what I would say is, okay, that's not the form of socialism I advocate. I advocate a radically democratic form of socialism, or whether we think of that as a non-socialist society, like what Max Shackman thought, that it was this like new mode of production, uh, bureaucratic collectivism that's different from both capitalism and socialism. Uh, I'm happy to talk in either way, uh, but the point The idea that people who say, oh, the Soviet Union, that kind of system, that's not what I mean by socialism, are doing a no true Scotsman thing is just totally wrong because this isn't some ad hoc redefinition after the fact to try to explain away a pesky counterexample what Marx meant by socialism, what Bakunin meant by socialism, what pretty much every socialist in the world before 1917 meant by socialism uh, was a system in which de- which democracy had been extended from politics to economics through collective ownership and democratic control of the means of production. Uh, so it's, it's the opposite. Like insisting on the original definition of a term and resisting redefining it is exactly the opposite of a no true Scotsman fallacy. It's like saying that you're committing no true Scotsman when you say that somebody bo- born in the Canadian province of Nova Scotia isn't a true Scotsman.
0: Continuing with libertarianism, one of the most sacred things to libertarians are property rights and one's ability to engage in a free market as they please. So this both relies on a very abstract, ahistorical understanding of how markets under capitalism actually function, and it also leads them into some rather bizarre mental gymnastics to maintain consistency, particularly regarding questions around consent, taxation, and violence. So can you unpack some of what goes on in libertarian views about markets and human interaction here?
1: Yeah, so what what this gets down to and um, libertarians talk about property rights, there are two issues that really should be kept analytically separate because they're completely distinct issues that are all too often jumbled together. Uh, one of which one of them is about, what libertarians sometimes call the non-aggression principle or not initiating uh, physical force. Uh, and one of them is about what a just distribution of property uh, would look like. And libertarians um, all too often starting, I think with Murray Rothbard, maybe even Ayn Rand uh, treat these as the same question. And so they'll make these arguments like, Oh, uh, the problem with economic redistribution is that it's theft. The reason that, w- that uh, trying to create a more equal society by taking away either some of the income of the rich uh, with uh, by taxpayer-funded social programs like universal health care or on a more radical level, taking away the businesses owned by the rich and uh, running them under public ownership or turning them into worker cooperatives or whatever – uh, when they say no, no, these things that would be bad because that would be that would be unjust. That would be theft uh, because it would be initiating aggression against other people in their prior, uh, and their property. Now, of course, it doesn't really make sense to talk about uh, using aggression or violence or force against property. Uh, we don't normally think that things are the kinds of things we can be violent towards. Uh, you know, when I eat a uh, when I eat a slice of pizza. I am being, I am annihilating it as thoroughly as anything could be annihilated without bringing antimatter into the equation, I'm dissolving it into its most component parts. We don't think I've been violent against the pizza, uh, but taking away the, the flourishes about violence, what we're really, they're really saying is, oh, you're violating their right, other people's right to keep their stuff. Uh, but the problem is what with interrogating that phrase, their stuff. What is it that makes it theirs, right? When we talk about somebody having a right to something, therefore it's wrong to take it away. well, what sort of right are we talking about? It can't be a legal right. Uh, because if it were if we were only interested in what's legally counts as somebody's property, then taxation would be fine because taxation, uh, because after all, the taxation is something that's established by laws, so if there's a law saying that the government gets 20% of your income, then legally that income is the property of your government. Uh, so what they really have to be talking about is a moral right, not a legal one. Uh, but what does it mean to have a, a moral right to something? Well, to, just to say that it's, it's, it's morally just that you should be allowed to have it. Now, libertarians will give you one theory – of what's morally just for you to have, and and leftists and socialists might give you other theories. Uh, but before we even get into that, the, the crucial point to underline is that that is just a separate question from uh, from the from the force issue. In other words, if we all agree that it's fine to use force to do things like recover stolen property because the thief doesn't have a moral right to their property it's fine to use force to enforce a no trespassing sign because the person who posted it uh, has a right to the land, then we're really not talking about force at all. It's not really a question of is is force or aggression good or bad. The question is which distribution of property should we be using force to enforce? Uh, and once you see that, all this talk about initiating force or the non-aggression principle, it's a total red herring. The real underlying issue is what is a just distribution. Now, liber- now, libertarians will often say just distribution is one that can be traced back to a just act of original acquisition. In other words, that uh, that somebody currently being in possession of something, uh, they have a, they have a moral right to it as long as they got it in a way that didn't involve force or fraud. That involved what the libertarian philosopher Robert Nozick called capitalistic acts between consent and adults, and that you can trace it back to some original act in which uh, somebody got it or created it in a way that was also morally kosher. Uh, and that's a theory of what's justified. I don't think it's a particularly plausible theory uh, because it's a theory that tells us that uh, if um, that, that a, a distribution of property, in which some people were were burning money for fun and some people were starving to death in the streets it would be fine if it came about in the right way. And I don't find that very morally plausible. Uh, but also, crucially, even if it were true, it wouldn't do the work that libertarians need it to do in justifying capitalism because the current distribution of property that we have under capitalism is not something that came about as a result of a bunch of free market transactions after some just act of original acquisition. It's not like Adam and Eve and their descendants just started going around freeholding uh, unclaimed land and then bartering with each other, and then that process led to the, the kind of property distribution that we have right now in contemporary capitalism. That's not at all what happened. What happened is that uh, even in Europe, uh, there was uh, capitalism was built up through all sorts of theft, uh, the enclosure of the commons, uh, you know, taking away land from, uh, from, from peasants, uh, the, the enriching of, of European capitalist centers with loot from colonies and slavery, uh, and compared to what happened here in the new world, where, um, the, the capitalist world that we have right now was built up, uh, using the labor of slaves on land that was uh, stolen from genocide victims. What happened in Europe was probably was, was like, a Innocent, Right. So uh, the point of all of this is that if the libertarian can't have it both ways, right, they can either say that it's that distributions of property derive their moral legitimacy from the history, in which case what we've the distribution of wealth we've got right now is wildly illegitimate or that the history doesn't matter, in which case they just need a new theory of property rights and they're going to have a very hard time explaining why it is that they think that most people should get to keep whatever property they have right now.
0: To move on, you look at Ayn Rand, who is most famous for her novels, but she also considered herself to be a philosopher because she occasionally would mention Aristotle or Kant, usually just to dismiss them. And whether she ever actually read them is another topic, But one of her favorite references is to Aristotle's Law of Identity, where A is equal to A. And from this, she allegedly manages to build her entire worldview. Interestingly enough, Leon Trotsky, a Soviet philosopher and activist who you've talked about a bit before, also picks this principle up and develops it into an entirely different political worldview. Now you don't think too highly of what either of these figures are doing with Aristotle's logic because it represents a misunderstanding of what logic is actually capable of doing in make in mistaking different sorts of logic. So can you unpack what you see going
1: on here? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so Ayn Rand, um, famously makes makes a lot of hay about this uh this phrase a is a uh so if you read for example her her novel atlas shrugged uh which is is kind of considered by her acolytes to to be her masterpiece uh and a massive portion of that novel is taken up by this big speech uh by the protagonist john galt uh, he's essentially leading this weird upside down version of a socialist revolution where rather than workers going on strike and forcing the the capitalists uh, to their knees, uh, it's the capitalists themselves uh, who, who go on strike and thus like Atlas holding up the world uh, and then shrugging. So the world falls off. It became becomes obvious how much we need these people. Um, and of course the reason that this all works in the first place is that in her version, she kind of equates capitalists with engineers and inventors, and in real life uh, engineers tend to join industrial workers and fight with the bosses alongside uh, and alongside other kinds of workers. Uh, but in any case, like in this big speech, John Galt makes this big deal of you know all of our problems come from politicians forgetting this simple truth: A is A. Uh, and then he says, "Man is man is mad," and then it kind of goes into this argument about human nature, and you could really see there the, the sort of three-card Monty trick of being pulled, uh, because what's doing all the work isn't this extremely uninformative logical principle that everything is identical to itself, A is A. What's doing all the work is this substantive claim about human nature. Uh, but Rand and her acolytes really did treat this as if um, they their views were something that you could just infer from pure logic and nothing else that you didn't need to reference anything uh, except for the laws of logic to get their position on ethics and selfishness and capitalism and all that stuff. Um, and then what I found really weird uh, as I was getting ready to, to, to get into this in the book is that Leon Trotsky, who's somebody I like a whole lot more than I like Ayn Rand is, um, in a weird way, said the same thing. Uh, I very much doubt that Trotsky read Rand. Uh, You know, I suppose not impossible. He could have read some super early thing or gotten whiff of it, but I I don't think, you know, I I think it's just a funny coincidence. Uh, But in a way, what what Trotsky says about this is like what Rand says about this with the pluses and minuses reversed. So in 1939, uh, when uh, the the Soviet Union um, made a pact with Nazi Germany uh, as the Molotov-Ribbentrop or Hitler-Stalin pact. Uh, they divided up Poland between them. Uh, so Western Poland was divided, was invaded by the Nazis and Eastern Poland uh, was invaded by the Soviet Union. Uh, and this in turn caused this big faction fight to spark up within uh, the American Trotskyist movement, the Socialist Workers' Party, this... this the Socialist Party that was, that was affiliated not with the Soviet Union, but with this great Soviet dissident uh, communist, Leon Trotsky. Uh, because Trotsky, as, as critical as he was of Stalin's regime, and as much as he thought it, it had, uh, as far as it had gone from, from his idea of, of how socialism or a transition to socialism should work, uh, he still thought that there was some salvageable socialist core there, that It was what he called a degenerated worker state, meaning that even though it had been taken over by this authoritarian party bureaucracy, uh, that it, it could be based, it could still be salvaged for the socialist project. Uh, and then there was this faction within the socialist workers' party after the Hitler Stalin pact who said, no, um at this point, it's not that at all, right? Like as we watch the Soviet army go into Poland and impose what they call socialism on the poles against their will, we're no longer talking about some great movement of, uh, of workers trying to achieve their own liberation, even in some degenerate or distorted form. Uh, really, we're looking at a new form of class society where uh, Soviet um, party bosses and and, and state uh, state bureaucrats uh, have just filled the role that was filled by capitalists and regular capitalist society. Uh, and all of this, of course, has absolutely nothing to do with uh, the laws of logic or whether Aristotle was right about logic or anything like that. But there was a point during this debate where James Burnham, who's was a, a philosophy professor uh, at uh, New York University, I believe, and was a prominent member of the SWP, and he was part of this opposition faction, mentioned in passing that uh, he didn't really accept what was sometimes called dialectical logic, which is a view that's associated with Hegel and Marx uh, and which everybody involved in this discussion thought was counterposed to Aristotelian logic, uh, which just kind of means traditional logic, that sort of logic where we say, you know, that, For every statement A, either A is true or it's not true and never both, right? There there are never true contradictions. Um, And supposedly, according to Trotsky, he said, oh, this is where Burnham has gone wrong because he's rejected this like core part of Marxism, which is dialectical logic. And what I argue in the book is that both Ayn Rand who thought that Marxists were rejecting, you know, uh, traditional logic, and that was the problem with Marxism? Uh, and Trotsky, who thought that uh, Marxist dialectical reasoning was totally different than Aristotelian logic, and that's where Burnham was going wrong because he was coming to these un-Marxist conclusions because he was rejecting dialectical logic. That they were both just fundamentally confused about this. That. Actually, what's sometimes called dialectical logic isn't at all in competition uh, with uh, with conventional logic, uh, because it's not logic at all in the sense that conventional logic is logic. The sense that I use the word logic in the book, which is the study of arguments, uh, trying to figure out uh, when statements are consistent with each other or not, trying to figure out when the premises of an argument have given you a good reason to believe the conclusion. That's what the word logic means. When we're talking about classical logic, so-called Aristotelian logic, um, and also there are weird non-classical logics that philosophers have developed that really are logic in that sense. But what Trotsky is talking about, we he talks about so-called dialectical logic, uses some of the same words like logic and contradiction, but it uses them to mean completely different things. So these aren't in competition with each other at all. They, these are, I argue in the book, just completely different subjects. So. When, uh, when somebody like uh, you know, Marx uh, talks about the contradiction between the working class and the capitalist class, he's certainly not talking about a logical contradiction, which means two statements that can't both be true. He's talking about a tension point within a complex system. Uh, and, and so what I argue in that chapter of the book is that this is one source of the weariness that some socialists have about logic talk that they've sort of absorbed this idea that Marxists believe in something called dialectical logic, which is somehow in opposition to, um, you know, conventional logic. Therefore Marxists should be uh, distrustful of conventional logical terminology. And I think that whole thing just rests on a confusion. These, these aren't actually competing theories of the same subject. These are actually just different subjects.
0: Interestingly, this book goes from here and starts to take a critical look at the political pundit Nate Silver, who is well known for using statistics to try and predict political outcomes. So given the relationship between statistical probabilities and logic, one might imagine you'd be really excited by this, but you find the way Silver uses statistics to be highly questionable in a number of places. So can you unpack the problem you see here?
1: Yeah, so uh, Nate Silver uh, actually, ironically, is, is somebody who uh, I used to know slightly. Uh, I went to high school with him. Uh, we were both on the, uh, the debate team at East Lansing High School very briefly. Uh, and, you know, and I, I, I think he's a likable guy. Uh, and when he first sort of came to prominence uh, for, well, first as a baseball statistician and then as a election statistician, uh, i I was excited about it uh, because I thought that he, you know even though I mean I haven't actually known him since high school, but you know I thought, hey you know hometown guy makes good uh, and he's doing good work uh, because what he's doing is he's popularizing certain ideas about uh, how to think about probability that uh, that are, are right and good and important. It's good to tell people that they should care less about anecdotal data than statistical data that we should get away from, you know, this kind of horse race punditry where pundits try to predict the outcomes of elections uh, just by looking at these like little bits and pieces of data that they can construct some sort of narrative about, almost like ESPN commentators, you know, uh, who are trying to predict the outcome of a game. And they're, you know, in the, the if they're not the kind of ESPN commentators who use a lot of stats, but they just, um, you know, but, but they just sort of tell stories about the players and they try to infer it from there. Uh, so I agree with all of that. Uh, but then also, I think he has a political worldview that I really disagree with that started to come out, especially when his book The Signal and the Noise came out, uh, the, especially the way he talked about the foreclosure crisis in 2008 in there uh, in this really weirdly apolitical way that just made it sound like the problem was people not understanding statistics well enough rather than, uh, deregulation and massive fraud. Uh, and he also has a really fawning interview with Colin Powell in there who I consider to be a war criminal, but all that stuff is just like, okay, Nate's politics are not my politics. Uh, the place where I started to get more disturbed was in 2016 where I thought that he was no longer really serving the function of even getting people to like use statistical data well. Like even in that really narrow a political sense, I feel like he was starting to fall down in the job uh, because his website, 538, it used to just be a blog, but then he got contracts with ESPN and The New York Times. And because of these contracts, uh, he and the other editors had to start shoveling an enormous amount of content onto the website uh, to for the contracts, and I thought it started to get much more noise and less signal. Uh, that it started to get to the point where they were doing things that were almost like a parody of horse race punditry, uh, and for like for example, um, they would they would literally. Uh, publish the the unedited chat transcripts of the editors like watching the returns come in from some primary together and during this period i really felt like nate's kind of liberal centrist politics uh, were really starting to to impact in a bad way his use of statistical data because instead of following the evidence where it led it seemed to me that he had certain kinds of horse race hunches that he was, uh, and and certain assessments of things that made sense to him within his worldview, that he was sort of trying to work backwards and find some little nugget of statistical data and hang these intuitions on. Uh, so the one that I, I really found the most striking uh, was where he he started saying repeatedly during the 2016 Democratic primary. Uh, that Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton weren't really that different politically. That you know you might think that Bernie is this big Democratic socialist and Hillary Clinton is a warmongering corporate centrist, uh, but but really they're not so very different. Uh, and because of his branding as the statistics guy, he had to find some way to make this a statistical argument um, that the political differences between them weren't really very important. And so the one he really found to hang his hat on was. This nugget about how when Bernie and Hillary were both in the Senate, uh, they voted together ninety three percent of the time. That sounds impressive. How different can they really be politically if they voted together ninety three percent of the time? Uh, and actually, I think uh, and you know part of why I turned to talking about this this point in the book was just I was going through different parts of logic. Uh, you know, basic logical principles like non-contradiction and how they come up in these arguments about people like Ayn Rand and Leon Trotsky In that chapter and in this chapter, um, logical principles about probability uh, and good and bad arguments you can make with probability. And I think this is a disturbingly good uh, instance, right? So I mentioned earlier in the interview, the hasty generalization fallacy, uh, which you commit when when you try to make a big generalization about a larger population on the basis of, way too small a sample that population. And again, this, this factoid about Bernie and Hillary is almost a caricature of hasty generalization because you're looking at a tiny sliver of both of their careers. Uh, Hillary Clinton, uh, before 2016, when she ran for president, she was Barack Obama's secretary of state. Before that, sure, she was briefly in the Senate. Uh, but um, But before that... Uh, She was the first lady and essentially a a very prominent advisor to and spokesman for the Clinton administration for eight years. Uh, Before that, she played a similar role in Arkansas. She's been politically active for a long, long time. And similarly with Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders became mayor of Burlington uh, in the 80s. And at the end of that decade, he went to Congress. He has been in Congress uh, for 30 years in one form or another, first in the House, then in the Senate. And Bernie and Hillary only overlapped for a couple of years. Uh, I think I think actually only two years, which is nothing by the standards of their careers. Um, and because this fact only looks at that brief little sliver of overlap, it misses the boat on all kinds of massively important votes. Uh, so one problem with with taking it, you know, this as some something that means anything, this ninety three percent figure. Is that assumes that all votes are created equal? Of course, that's obviously not true. There are meaningless procedural votes where you might get widespread bipartisan unanimity. There, there are votes that are just kind of about partisan maneuvering, where everybody in the Democratic Caucus is going to vote the same way as a matter of course. Uh, there, there are votes that are about you know making. Uh, You know, about declaring, you know, whatever, Stamp Collectors Day to honor the stamp collectors. And then there are votes about things like the Iraq War. And the Iraq War vote doesn't even make it into this statistic uh, because when Hillary Clinton was one of the leading Democratic voices advocating the invasion of Iraq, she was already in the Senate. And when uh, Bernie Sanders was one of the leading opponents of the war in Iraq, and in fact, he was organizing a Democratic opposition to that vote. He was still in the House. So that doesn't count. Similarly, Hillary voted for the Patriot Act. Bernie voted against it. Similarly, Hillary voted to reauthorize the Patriot Act. Bernie voted against that. Similarly, 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 you can find like 20 massively important votes that don't make it into this calculation. And also, this is kind of my favorite part, even though it's the least politically important because it just really shows up the total absurdity of this methodology. when these two years that they were both in the Senate weren't even typical of Hillary's time in the Senate because those were the two years that she was running for president against Barack Obama for the 2008 cycle. And everybody knows and just takes it for granted that, of course, uh, senators and congressmen who are running for president don't show up for very many votes during those two years because they're extremely busy campaigning. This is something that every... Uh, politician who's running for president has to struggle with okay, which votes do I show up for because anytime I fly back to DC to show up for a vote, I'm missing campaign opportunities. Uh, I can't go to you know the Iowa Fair or whatever if I'm if I'm back in DC uh, showing up for a vote. Uh, so so really uh, I, I think that this this is a pretty clear example of somebody whose alleged mission in life, and, and who at his best and his best work is all about getting people to think more clearly about statistics, just kind of having some mediocre centrist political instincts and really letting that distort his analysis of the stats.
0: Um, You argue that the issue of Nate Silver and some of the issues with what he's doing with statistics reflects a broader issue in how a certain sort of technocratic neoliberal might view politics as a sort of detached analysis from nowhere and where we simply calculate the best policies and voters should simply go with the most qualified candidates with the best merits. This is a popular but problematic way of thinking about politics in your view. So can you unpack what you see going on here?
1: Yeah. Uh, So I think a a book not written by me that I would really recommend for some insight about this is uh, by Thomas Frank, who's most famous for his book, What's the Matter with Kansas? Uh, And he wrote a book called Listen, Liberal, Whatever Happened to the Party of the People. Uh, And... You know, Frank, as far as I can tell, is not a socialist. You know, he, he's, uh, you know, he's not on exactly the same page as I am politically. You know, I wouldn't really think the Democratic Party has ever been in a terribly meaningful sense, the party of the people. Uh, I, I, I think, you know, my, my heroes in earlier American political history are people like Eugene V. Debs and Norman Thomas, uh, not, you know, FDR and Lyndon Johnson. But uh, he's absolutely right in his main argument in that book. Uh, which is about the way that liberalism has evolved in mainstream Democratic Party contexts over the course of the last several decades, uh, as the Democrats started moving away from seeing their main base of support as being industrial workers uh, to really focusing on highly educated suburban professionals. And in, the, in so doing, the way they talk about politics has increasingly come to reflect the preoccupations, concerns, values and worldview of those well-educated suburban professionals, what Barbara Ehrenreich has called the PMC, the professional managerial class that really fetishizes uh, formal credentials and education and has a worldview that's, in a certain sense, meritocratic and a certain sense technocratic. Uh, It's meritocratic in the sense that it primarily conceives of justice and injustice in terms of upward mobility. So, if uh, ten thousand workers are laid off because some you know giant corporation is moving its operations to some country with fewer regulations where they can pay lower wages as part of an endless neoliberal race to the bottom, that's not really seen as a social injustice issue at all. That's just sort of seen as the natural functioning of a market economy. It's like uh, it's like trying to it's like seeing an earthquake as an issue of social injustice, whereas If there aren't enough female CEOs, that's seen as a social injustice issue because basically in this sort of professional managerial class liberalism, social justice and injustice is primarily reconceptualized as a matter of are there unfair barriers to the best and the brightest from each group rising to the top? Where the technocratic element comes in is in what happens once the best and the brightest have risen to the top? Uh, and that is what uh, what I compare it to in the book, is the philosopher Leibniz, um, who was uh, this uh, really important philosopher and mathematician. He was the co-creator, along with Isaac Newton, of calculus. Uh, he was also the inspiration for uh, the Dr. Pangloss character in Candide, because uh, he talked about how this was the best of all possible worlds. And Leibniz had this view that eventually... We would get so good at formal logic. We would get so good at at this kind of precise reasoning that philosophers wouldn't have to dispute with each other about their theories anymore. They could just say, let's let us sit down and calculate. Uh, and this is the kind of, um, you know, again, at least a sort of rough model for how to think about this technocratic view of political problems, where I'm using my words very carefully. They're political problems, where in other words, people see, controversial political issues, not so much as a matter of competing or clashing economic interests, and not even really as a matter of clashing ideology or values, but rather as technical problems in need of technical solutions. That, in other words, what you really want is for the best and the brightest to all get together and, in a non-ideological way, figure out what the objectively best solutions are uh, to these problems. And I think you can see some of that uh, in the way that Nate Silver uh, thinks that we can evaluate uh, political affinity um, in this purely quantitative way without having to actually think about underlying political ideologies. Uh, And you can certainly see it in things like Barack Obama's uh, quest throughout his first term for a grand bargain with Republicans on deficits and entitlements, uh, where the idea is that we can just all post-ideologically uh, sit down and, mm-hmm. and figure out, like just, just by the smartest people all getting in the same room and doing their thing, uh, what the right solution is to these problems about spending and, and deficits and all of that stuff, uh, rather than seeing these things as sites of struggle, which I think we should, because uh, one of the big themes of the book is that all moral and political conclusions ultimately come from normative commitments, that there are some moral and political goals that we care about. Uh, Logic by itself can't tell you what to care about. Logic by itself, uh, you know, facts by themselves can't tell you what to care about, right? No combination of facts and logic by themselves can do that. What logical reasoning is good for is figuring out, okay, if I care about this thing, should I also care about this other thing? uh, what's the best way of carrying out the goals that I care about. Uh, but ultimately people have different values and political differences often come from that. And I'm also enough of an old fashioned Marxist to think that very often underlying those clashing ideologies, you have clashing economic interests.
0: To briefly turn gears, uh, for a little bit. You have a chapter in the book, Myth and Mayhem, a leftist critique of Jordan Peterson, which is also from Zero Books. Uh, and for those who are interested, I talked with Matt McManus and Marianne Trejo a couple months, we went through it in much more depth. But I want to ask you about your chapter in that book. Uh, you kick things off there by talking about what you call the Hitchens effect. So what is that? And how does it help us think more critically about the Jordan Peterson phenomena?
1: Yeah. Uh, so I think I'm, I'm glad that you asked about this because, uh, in a lot of ways, I think about that book, right? So, um, so yeah, it was co-written by me, uh, Matt McManus, Marianne Trejo and Comrade Hamilton, uh, introduction by Slavoj Zizek. So, um, all those other people's parts of the book, uh, are really interesting really worth reading, but certainly in terms of my chapter in that book, um, I basically think of that as the missing Jordan Peterson chapter from Give Them an Argument. Uh, in other words, I think that what I'm talking about there would fit very well in Give Them an Argument because a certain amount of it is spent uh, trying to uh, debunk uh, some of the, uh, the anti-Marxist arguments made uh, by, uh, by Jordan Peterson uh, and the what we talked about earlier about Stalinism and all that stuff. I uh, should give you some idea of what I say there, uh, but also that in a way that that my chapter of Myth and Mayhem was, was the missing rhetoric chapter uh, from uh, Give Them an Argument, because after talking about why I think some of Peterson's anti-socialist arguments are so bad, uh, what I really want to get into is why is it that um, they're as persuasive as they are <laughs> Uh, despite the fact that there are these massive logical holes. Uh, and that's where we get into this uh, Christopher Hitchens effect. So Christopher Hitchens, the British um, journalist and, and political commentator, uh, writer, uh, was somebody who I think was is a fascinating figure. Uh, I think he was extremely insightful on lots of different subjects, even if I really disagree with uh, the turn that his politics took in the final decade of his life. But I think when we look at that turn, where Hitchens started to um, be very, very focused on his critique of religion, which had always been part of his worldview, but it was a very small part of his writings up until that final decade, uh, and, and it started the way he talked about it, started at least to me to feel a lot more simplistic. Like uh, one of his books from that period is actually subtitled how, Re- or no, it's it's called uh, how religion poisons everything. Uh, and it seems to me that in effect, he's blaming religion per se for some incredibly complex social and historical processes that have lots of causes that have nothing to do with religion. Uh, and so just analytically, it's not his best work. Uh, and, and also the, Stance he was taken in the war on terror, I think, is very simplistic and very unworthy of, of earlier versions of Hitchens and, and of Hitchens at his best. So, even though, in my view, at least, this was the least impressive period of his life, uh, this was also the period in which he became the most famous and beloved. And even today, if you go onto YouTube and watch like compilations of you know the best of Hitchens, or uh, sometimes people talk about these rhetorical. Uh, rebukes that he had of his opponents as hitch slaps you watch this hitch slap compilation videos it's all stuff from that least interesting period so what's going on there and I think that a big part of what's going on uh, is that Hitchens is somebody who had this kind of Oxbridge accent this very posh uh, British accent uh, and uh, he, he had a lot of in like literary kind of references and historical references at his fingertips. And he sounded incredibly confident. Uh, And that's all stuff that Americans especially are huge suckers for. And just all of that, right? Just that kind of packaging, the the patterns of his speech uh, was, was enough to, I think, give everything that he was saying, a lot of credibility, both in the places where I think he deserved it, which were many, and also the places where I don't think he particularly deserved it, which became increasingly more during that final decade. Uh, and that there's a very similar effect going on with Jordan Peterson. Uh, even though Peterson's background is completely different, uh, he actually comes from a pretty out-of-the-way uh, part of, uh, of Canada, um, and he's really leaned into... Uh, it, you know, le- like leaned into that since becoming famous. Uh, this this sort of uh prairie populist style of presentation, but even so, I think just the fact that uh he has this accent that Americans aren't really used to hearing very much, uh, and uh he he kind of presents himself in this very authoritative way that he that like. I've been all around and I've really looked into this stuff and I've really thought about this stuff and I'm just going to, I'm not going to really take you through the reasoning too much. I'm just going to announce my conclusions. And especially when you're talking about a lot of um, things like Peterson is where, you know, a lot of it's very political, but a lot of it also has to do with psychology. A lot of it's frankly mystical, you know, who use these phrases like the dragon of chaos that, you know, order is supposed to keep at bay. He really, when it's combined with that certain, the rhetorical effect that he's so good at, he's a very charismatic speaker. It's very easy to imagine a version of him that was like a, a very successful evangelical preacher. So he can keep audiences spellbound, uh, and 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 he has this very charismatic way of coming across uh, as as an authoritative sage, and that really gives this aura. Of, uh, of legitimacy to everything that he's saying, even when sometimes what he's saying is completely absurd. Uh, that, you know, he, he says things like the twinned stake imagery that's common in ancient artwork uh, is a representation of the double helix structure of DNA and suggests this has something to do with ancient shamans, uh, you know, taking psychedelic drugs and getting this insight into DNA This is stuff that you shouldn't be able to say in front of an audience full of adults without everybody bursting into laughter. Uh, but, But Peterson can kind of get away with it because he looks kind of grizzled, because he has an unusual accent, because he presents himself as this very fatherly, very authoritative kind of figure. So before you can even debunk Peterson, a lot of what you have to do is to try to find ways of breaking that rhetorical spell.
0: You look at a clip of Peterson's where he brings up the question of whether Marxist theory can be separated from Stalinist practice and argues in a somewhat ambiguous fashion that a Stalinist result is more or less inevitable whenever Marxists attempt to engage in the world. So this brings us back a little bit to what we talked about libertarianism earlier, but um, as we've been kind of developing, he has his own kind of Rhetorical style and his own kind of argumentative style, where he doesn't make the argument explicit, so you have to kind of build a lot of his connections for him. But can you kind of explain the logic that drives his understanding here?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so a lot of my time in the chapter is spent breaking down the rhetorical techniques uh, that he's using when when he makes this argument uh, that. You know, he, he does all these things that various effective speakers do, and I think it's it's important to kind of recognize what's going on, why it's as compelling as it is. Uh, but if you look at the substance of his argument uh, in that clip, uh, he's basically saying, oh, uh, you could try to say that we could have this other better form of socialism, uh, that, you uh, that, you know, that, that what happened in the Soviet Union, that wasn't real socialism or real communism or whatever. Uh, but but really what I advocate is the real stuff. And, and he derides this by saying that what people are saying when they say this is, oh, if I were in Stalin's position, I wouldn't have committed all those atrocities. I would have been, you know, kind and gentle and brought in, you know, ushered in the utopia. Uh, and this is. Very rhetorically effective in the way he presents it, you know, because because from that starting point he's able to kind of mock the idea that the people who are saying this are making this grandiose claim for about themselves that they're immune from the corruptions of power and they wouldn't abuse it, uh, and and that they could just like choose to exercise it in benevolent ways, all of which is totally fair. He is absolutely right that an obvious objection to the Soviet system is that if you had somebody like Stalin on the top of it, they could commit terrible atrocities, the same way that the existence of Caligula is an indictment of the imperial Roman system. Uh, and Peterson overstates the point a little bit. He says anybody in that position you know, would commit it, or if you didn't, somebody else would take over from you, and they'd commit these atrocities. And if you actually look at Soviet history, uh, it's really not the case uh, that uh, Khrushchev and Brezhnev and Gorbachev and everybody... We're actually committing atrocities on the level of Stalin's. But that point, that's a secondary point. You know, I mean, his core point that if you're going to have this kind of concentration of power where if you just get the wrong person, they'll commit terrible atrocities, that's really bad. And it's a little much to say that, oh, you should just have a, a kind and humane person in that position of power. That's all true. But none of it's actually relevant in any way to what democratic socialists and anti-Stalinist Marxists have been saying Throughout the entire history of those political traditions, which have existed for as long as Stalinism has, you, you know, go you can go all the way back to 1918 uh, when uh, the Russian Revolution was less than a year old, and Rosa Luxemburg uh, was writing a pamphlet, uh, you know, criticizing you know the kind of authoritarian tendencies of the early Bolsheviks. Uh, that this tradition has always existed, and what people in that tradition have said was not that oh, it's good to have. The kind of political system that they have in Stalin's Russia, except for they should have somebody kinder than Stalin on the top of it. What they've done is criticized the system itself and 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 said we shouldn't have this concentration of power at the top. We shouldn't have a one party dictatorship. Uh, what we should have is actually something more democratic than what exists in capitalist democracies. Because we should have democracy in the workplace, right? We should have multi party elections. Uh, with, with with free press, and also uh, workers should, uh, should, should get to exercise democratic control on the job. You know, we should deepen democracy. And there might be lots of good arguments against that, but it's absurd to fault anti-Stalinist Marxists on the basis of this, this caricature, this straw man of their views that holds that they basically liked what existed in the Soviet Union. They just thought somebody else should have been on top or the person in the Stalin slot should have made different decisions.
0: Uh, you recently had a debate online with the online political commentator Stefan Molyneux, who has what we might charitably describe as controversial views on topics like race and gender. Uh, so I don't want to unpack that debate In much detail. People can look it up if they Mm. so desire, but I do bring it up because I think it brings up this interesting question that gets debated in a lot of progressive spheres about what people and ideas should be debated. So on the one hand, some people believe sunlight is the best medicine, while others think that certain ideas and figures shouldn't be given the benefit of a platform. Obviously, you think that these ideas can and should be argued against using logic and uh, good arguments, but you're also obviously very sensitive throughout the book to certain optical dynamics. So could you maybe talk a bit about what you think the limits here are and what factors in dynamics should be borne in mind when deciding whether to debate certain people or topics?
1: Yeah. Uh, so this is something that comes up a lot. You know, when somebody like me debates somebody like uh, Stephen Molyneux or like Gavin McGinnis uh, I've had debate with, Uh, A lot of people on the left will be very upset by that. There were even people on the left who were upset that Slavoj Zizek debated Jordan Peterson uh, last year in Toronto uh, using the same objection. Oh, these are bad people. You shouldn't platform them. Uh, Where platforming them means giving them a platform. And thus, I guess the idea is giving some legitimacy to their horrible views by treating them as being up for debate. Um, And... I think that this is in the vast majority of cases severely misguided uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, Certainly in many of these cases, uh, you know, it's, it's just kind of an absurd thing uh, to talk about platforming these people who are actually much more famous than the, uh, than uh, the leftists who are debating them. Right. So, um, so for example uh, you know, Stefan Molyneux, I think, I think it's been deleted since, but I think at the time that I did that debate, you know, he had something like a quarter of a million subscribers to his YouTube channel. Uh, So this idea that I was exposing people to the bad views of Stefan Molyneux by, by debating him is exactly backwards, right? You know, he already has this massive platform, and if anything, the effect of my debating him is to expose people to me. Who wouldn't be exposed to me much more than exposing people to him? Who wouldn't otherwise be exposed to him? Um, much less somebody like uh, Jordan Peterson, who wrote this crazy runaway bestseller that two years later still regularly makes it to the Amazon, you know, Amazon charts near the top. Um, and you know, like the idea that you know Zizek is famous for a leftist, but he's nothing like as famous as Stephen Molyneux. So that's just a weird objection just in terms of the factual premise. But I think the bigger thing that gets that is important in terms of what you're asking about the dynamics uh, is that this idea that by denying bad and reactionary commentators, the gift of our presence with them on a debate stage, we're somehow weakening them uh, really strikes me as kind of magical thinking uh, that that's you know that, that are boycotting them can have this big effect. I think there might be some cases uh, for some really extreme views where somebody is super marginal and so even debating somebody like me might lift them up and there could be like a real tactical question there about whether it'd be better to just ignore them. Uh, I, I don't think that's impossible. But I think for the most part, uh, this is very misguided because even in those cases, what you have to balance that against is that what, most persuadable people that's who you should really be thinking about with any of these guys because that's who you're trying to appeal to when you debate them are people who could go either way people who might be curious about these figures might be starting to gravitate towards them but aren't so far gone that you couldn't convince them uh and to those people who are already interested in those figures you know who, who would watch to watch them Um, and who who could go either way politically, uh, to those people, the very worst thing you could do is not debate out of some sort of pseudo principle about platforming, uh, because what that's going to look like to almost everybody in that category is not, oh, I guess now I see how bad they are because Ben wouldn't talk to them. It's, oh, these leftists are afraid to debate these people, because they know they don't have a good answer to their arguments.
0: To return to your own book, in the final chapter, you look back at the technocratic liberal vision of politics and how liberals have not only failed to secure real political power, but have a rather lackluster vision of how to communicate their political vision to voters, usually boiling things down to We're the smart and logical ones. So you should just trust us to come up with the best plans for you. This leads you to argue that the left needs a different strategy, not just in terms of policy, but in how it communicates that policy and how it needs to balance uh, logical rigor with other forces to make it more appealing and comprehensible to Mm. a wide number of people. So in closing, uh, what role do you see logic playing, not just in developing but in communicating uh, political policy?
1: Yeah. So I think certainly in terms of developing policy, uh, I think it's important to take a step back here because for most of the interview, we've been talking about arguing with the right. But of course, that's not the only kind of arguments uh, that leftists get into. Uh, It's also the case that political disagreements come up within the left. In fact, we've talked about a few of those already. And honestly, uh, I'm pretty sure that's happened at least once every 15 minutes since the French Revolution. Uh, and when that happens, it's really important that we not um, that we not just sort of use mockery or moral condemnation against other leftists who disagree with us, uh, which we tend to fall into if those were our only tools for battling the right. Um, but instead, that we Carefully reason about what they're saying, uh, because one, it's we uh, have a much better shot at making it like finding the truth if we approach it that way. Uh, oftentimes, these intra-left debates are very complicated, and there's some truth on both sides. And navigating that and figuring out who's right to what extent uh, requires some complex reasoning. Uh, and two, uh, if our only tools are mockery or moral to- condemnation, when we turn those on each other. Uh, that gets really ugly really fast and very alienating to persuadable people. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, like every time I log on to Twitter, I see way too much, too many examples of intra-left discussions that are being handled that way. Also, um, when you start thinking about building socialism, uh, if we think that we can have a non-capitalist society that are, that's better than the failed Stalinist experiments of the past, Uh, That we can have this radically democratic economic order where democracy is extended to the workplace. That involves a lot of ordinary people trying to figure out all sorts of challenges and building that society together. And again, that involves a lot of very complex reasoning. Uh, And then finally, when it comes to conveying policy to to persuading people, of course, all sorts of questions that are squarely on the rhetoric side of the logic rhetoric distinction are going to be very relevant there. I'd never want to understate that. but it's also true that oftentimes people do have hangups about um, about left wing policies that would really benefit them, um, you know, even in terms of immediate reforms, never mind more latter radical long term horizons. Uh, and we need to be able to squarely and convincingly address those reasonable hesitations, and not just write off anybody who has them as a. Uh, irredeemable political enemy, because if we don't do that, we're not going to win. Excellent.
0: So that brings us to the end of the book. So as a final question, what, if anything, are you working on now?
1: Yeah. So I have uh, one book that I've already written uh, that's coming out uh, in April. um, And that's about the kind of, basically it expands on the intra-left uh, part of the critique that I was just given, uh, it's called canceling comedians while the world burns, a critique of the contemporary left and argues that a lot of unhelpful, uh, moralistic approaches to politics, uh, really undermine the strategic, uh, effectiveness of the left, uh, and, and that we, we need to do better, uh, if we're going to win against the kind of long odds that we're facing. So that comes out at the end of April. Uh, There's also a book that I'm working on right now. Uh, These are all for zero books, uh, which is about Christopher Hitchens, who I mentioned earlier. So uh, it's, uh, we're going to try to, if I can get it finished uh, in time, we're going to try to uh, have it so it'll come out at the end of next year, which will be the 10 year anniversary of Hitchens' death. Uh, And it's really an attempt to, to sort out everything I was talking about earlier when I said that he has a lot of really valuable insights uh, he also went very wrong in the final period of his life uh, and so it's, it's kind of an attempt to do a look back at Hitchens that maybe the left couldn't do immediately after he died because a lot of emotions were a little still raw from from his political turn at the end of his life uh, and and now a little bit more time has passed and maybe we could have more of a balanced assessment so the book is called Christopher Hitchens. Uh, what he got right, how he went wrong, and why he still matters.
0: Excellent. So Ben Burgess, thank you for being with us.
1: All right. Thank you so much, Stephen.